Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. This series has been the hardest one to get Bible readers for, for some reason. <laughs> 13 years and about nine months ago, uh, Claire and I were on our honeymoon. I'm going to tell you a honeymoon story. Uh, we went to Fiji. Pretty good, right? Um, so we had to get up really early in the morning here in Adelaide, go to the airport and get on a plane, really long flight. Um, took up most of the day because, you know, time zones and everything. We finally get into Fiji and it's hot and it's sticky and it's awesome. And we get out of the airport, get on this bus and we have to go on this two hour long drive um, to finally get to our hotel. It's along the coastal road. We finally pull up at the hotel and it's so not like the pictures. Like, it's fairly disappointing. It's kind of run down. It looks like it was awesome in the 60s. Um, and the beach, uh, we were expecting, you know, these sparkling white sands. It's coral. It's dead coral. You can't even swim there or anything. And um, we check in. We have dinner. And it's fairly bland and flavorless, flavorless and overpriced. And... Um, then we're going up to our stinky little sweaty cabin on the top of the hill. And as we're walking up the steps to get there, there's cane toads all over the place, just hopping around everywhere. And Claire's just feeling really creeped out and like, oh man. (laughs) And so me, being a good husband that I finally was, I'm like, I'm going to do something to make this better. So let's go for a walk on the beach. So we turn around and we go back down and we go down because it's like, you know, the sun's setting, let's take in the sunset, let's get the big view of things, right? And we come down to the beach and there is sand, it's like a strip of sand from me to Carl. And we step down off the lawn onto the sand and then we notice that there are hundreds of crabs coming out of the water (laughs) and towards us across the sand. And Claire screams and she jumps back up on the grass and then she notices the cane toads coming the other way. (laughs) And we just both think in that moment, what have we gotten ourselves into? And for those of you who have been on a honeymoon, maybe you are reading more into that than what I've actually said. And yeah. Chapter 1 of Song of Songs. It talks about attraction And there's this beauty and blessing of of love when two people fall in love. And not just for them, but for the people around them as well. And there's this echo of this future at last. At last, we're together. And it calls us to look towards Jesus who we will be with forever. At last, knowing him, being known with him forever. It's beautiful. Like, Romantic love between two people is meant to point us to that. It's a big thing. And chapter 2 gets into the courtship of it and and how these two people draw close to each other. Spring has sprung and love is enticing. Um, But there's dangers there. We've got to look out for the little foxes. They get through that faithfully. And then chapter 3, we come to the wedding. And it's this grand occasion. And everyone is drawn into the celebration of the love between these two people. And they're making that love official. And they're making a covenant to each other for the rest of their lives. 
But the focus isn't on the bride or her groom. The focus of a Christian wedding is on the bridegroom, capital B, our saviour, Jesus Christ. And all the flowers and mason jars and carriages of Solomon, they cannot compare to the beauty that Jesus brings to a Christian wedding. And now, at last, chapter 4, we reach the honeymoon. And I thought someone else was going to preach this chapter. But here we are. The honeymoon is meant to be the best time of your life, right? So what happens when it, it doesn't quite meet those standards? Didn't. The reality um, might not be so poetic as the text here implies, but the significance of it, of what happens, demands poetry and calls us to think loftily of what is going on. So here we are, Song of Songs, the wedding night, the honeymoon, and it wants us to think loftily. And this is the challenge, and this is a place where we need the Spirit's help, to think loftily about sexual things. Because we're trying to see what God thinks, what God wants, and how God is glorified through all of this. How do we think loftily about this without our minds going straight to the gutter? We need to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you've made us. We thank you for the way that you have instituted marriage and sex between two married people and the beauty of it. And Father, it is something hard and a stumbling block for a lot of us to think these things through. Please help us to see things the way you want and not the way we want or the way we think. Holy Spirit, please work tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So some people take this chapter as a bit of a how-to manual for lovemaking. Um, so um, this is what the man should say, um, and this is how the woman should respond, and that's, that's kind of good, um, and that definitely does happen here in this chapter, um, but I feel like it's taking the poetic form too far. I'm a poet, I'm not a technician, um, so we're going to go the poetry way, all right? It's a poem, and more than just saying, this is how to do sex the right way, it's saying, oh, get your head around how beautiful this is, the significance of what is happening in right here. <clears throat> so rather than following this chapter like a, like a colour-by-numbers task, right? Yeah, got to mention her eyes and her mouth and her pomegranates and, like... <laughs> We want to appreciate the beauty of, what's, of what the singer is painting for us here. The beauty of sex the way God intended. Because for some of us, sex is this mysterious thing way off in the distance that might come, might not come. For some of us, sex is a reality of life, but maybe not quite so perfect as what this says here in this chapter. For some of us, it's a bit of a cruel joke and not anything we'd expected um, or a stumbling block. So what we have here is this meditation on the beauty of sex, God's way. It's recalibrating us to see it God's way, what sex means, why we need to keep it for marriage and why it's not everything. So you ready? Here we go. The honeymoon. It's honeymoon night. And he is looking at her. <coughs> excuse me. 
And he's getting poetic. Behold, you're beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. He's just warming up, all right? it's, It's simple opening line, but then he gets into it. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. It's lovely. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing. She's cleaned her teeth. All of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. You've got all your teeth, and they're clean. You are amazing. You're everything I've dreamed of. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. It's getting a little bit sexy, because pomegranate was a bit of an aphrodisiac back then. But, um, you know, maybe she's blushing. We look at all of this, right? Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. Slender, tall, like centre of attention, who knows? On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors, like a necklace. And we kind of look at it and we think, what are you saying, man? <laughs> like, he's using these metaphors and it sounds completely comical to us now, right? Hair like goats. Teeth like sheep. No, don't go there. <clears throat> but these were really satisfying images. For them, they were in this rural community and, oh, like, ah, oh, there's a ewe with its lamb and, ah, that, oh, that's good. That's really good. Oh, look at those goats. Oh, look at you. Like, it's... The really pleasing. Seem really weird to us. They're actually really helpful for a number of reasons. Let me give you a few. It's like uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago. It's like this song of songs. It's like a love song, where it's vague enough for us to tap into it and say, "Yep, that's my experience." Where we can take this and and. The metaphors just let us drift and imagine and include our beloved in this song, right? They're helpful for that reason, but the metaphors are also helpful because they soften the lens. (laughs) They helpfully blur things a bit so we don't get the complete picture, which means it's it's not literary pornography we're reading here. It's vague enough. It's not coarse, it's not crude. One commentator says, it's like we're drawn comfortably into the lover's orbit without too much visual stimulation, right? These metaphors are good. I'm glad they're there. And here is a great example of that helpful vagueness. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. What does he mean? She knew. Twins, they're matching. Um, Maybe he's talking with a sense of playfulness here. There's a gentleness about it. Fawns, I'm going to be gentle with you. It's sweet. Um, Whatever they mean, here's one thing we should note. These two have crossed a line. You can speak to your girlfriend all you want about how her hair reminds you of goats. But don't talk about her breasts because you're not looking at them, right? And she's not showing them. It's not a topic of conversation. (laughs) That's a line you don't cross. But if you're married, you can mention her fawns all you want. 
Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. He's been working his way down her body, your hair, your eyes, your teeth, your neck. And now he gets to her breasts. And it's like he's saying, that's it. Let's go. We're out of here. Take me to the mountains. Um, The mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Matching mountains. Anyway, here's the cool thing with this verse, right? He says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee. That means they've been lying in bed together in the night. And this is what's cool about it. This is an amazing moment in the Bible because all through the, through the Bible, night is a bad thing. Night is a place of danger and secrecy and treachery. Like nighttime was when Jesus was betrayed in the garden, right? Psalm, the psalmist, he talks about it all the time, about night is a bad place and I'm longing for the day to come. Psalm 30 says, weeping is for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Psalm 90 talks about the terror of the night. Proverbs 7 talks about the foolish man walking the streets in the darkness at night, looking for a prostitute. This darkness and night is a bad thing. And yet here, he's saying... I'm soaking it in. The darkness and the night is a place to, be, to cherish. It's this place of blessing and security and love for these two. And why is that? It's because they're married. And the covenant faithfulness of these two people who've pledged their love to each other for life means that night, which was a dangerous place, now becomes a good and a safe place. There's nothing to hide. See, the the night is this place where people hide and do secret, treacherous things. But now, for a married couple, it's a place for them to privately enjoy each other in the presence of God. Here's a cool thing, that marriage flips things. It flips a relationship in the best possible way. Suddenly, the night is good. If you're not married and you're together with someone, that's a dangerous place to be and you need to be careful. But once you're married, man, that becomes a sweet, beautiful place. Let me riff on that a bit more. Verse 7, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Altogether beautiful. You are perfect. You can do no wrong in my eyes. It's like love is blind. But really, like, Love like this guy's love actually opens, opens his eyes even further. Because she sees all these flaws in herself. In chapter one, she says, I'm dark, I'm a wildflower. And he's like, I'm having none of it. And I get that. My wife, Claire, has become more and more beautiful to me every year that we've shared together. And this is a really cool and a really helpful thought. Men... Here is the standard for beauty. There is no one, no one as beautiful as your wife. Everyone else falls short because they don't look like her. They don't resemble her. She is the embodiment of beauty for you. She is the benchmark of beauty. And you know what? She's yours. I think of Claire 
this is me getting poetic, every smile, every crease of her brow, every time she flicks her hair, every time she has this belly laugh or a sneeze, she has the most amazing sneezes. <laughs> the, like this, the scent of her neck when we hug, like all of those things, like any one of those things, they bring up shared memories and moments. Like every single one is heavy with meaning because of what's come before. Like they, they form the music of our life together, like sparks kindling fire. <laughs> They're little reminders of what makes my life so sweet. Every time she sneezes, every time she smiles, every time she laughs, every time I smell her hair. Anytime I notice any of these things about her, I swoon a little because she has been so beautifully faithful to me for so long. She has shared so many dazzling sunsets with me since that first one in Fiji. She's weathered so many storms with me and she's been tender the whole way. And so any of those little moments, I fall in love with her a little bit more. And she becomes even more beautiful and no one else is like that. No one else comes close to that. Marriage flips things. Because with marriage, it's not like you're trying to find the most beautiful person and hope that it doesn't fade away because beauty fades. As soon as you're married, it flips it and your bride becomes perpetually more and more beautiful. That's pretty sweet, hey? Marriage does more. Verse 8, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peaks of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, where you've come from. I want you to leave that place and come to me and be with me. Leave your homeland behind. I am your homeland now. I am going to protect you. I'm going to be your safe place, your security. You are my bride. He says this, Depart from the dens of lions and from the mountains of leopards. She's coming from this dangerous place, lions and leopards. And this is a warning to anyone here who is dating. If you're not married to her yet, if she's not your bride, if he's not your husband, then you're not her lover. You're not his lover. You are a leopard. You're not actually able to give her protection and security. You're putting her in danger. Just keep that in mind. But once you're married, marriage flips everything because you are no longer a leopard or a lion causing her harm or putting her in harm's way. You're a lover. You're not a predator, you're a protector. Marriage is beautiful like that. And here they are on the honeymoon, and everything has changed. Come away from that place. Together now, this has become a safe place. He says, you've captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace, with one sneeze. You've captivated me. 
My heart belongs to you, to no one else. This is underlining the fact, this is exclusive. I am yours and you are mine, captivated. No one else comes in. And he says this thing that sounds strange to us. He says, my sister, my bride. He says it over and over again. My sister, my bride. And it seems really weird to us, right? But it's actually really beautiful. Because a husband and a wife... In Christian marriage, before they are married, they are not unrelated. But they are brother and sister. United in Christ. And that bond that each of them has with Christ brings them closer together. Because they were united beforehand as brother and sister in Christ. And that bond is going to outlast the physical bond of sex in marriage. Jesus said there's no marriage in heaven. It's just till death do you part. But, I mean, that's a shocking truth, but that actually makes the bond of marriage even more precious. Because my bride is also my sister. And it gives that relationship so much more significance, eternal significance, because I don't just treat her as a bride, just someone to love and adore until death parts us. I treat her as a sister, as someone who I will treasure for all eternity, and someone who I want to be treasured for all eternity by Jesus. Do you get that? You're my sister and my bride. This is, this is huge. God's view of how a marriage should be is so much bigger than what the world says. It's eternal. I'm going to honour you, not just for now, but with eternity in view as well. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than, than spice. This love is good. Better than wine. Spurgeon says it's better than wine because it doesn't go sour. It's better than wine because it's dignifying rather than degrading. It's better than wine because it doesn't give you a hangover. Sex within the protective confines of marriage, its no shame, no hangover. Your lips strip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. This is pretty essential stuff to have in the Bible. There's this taste, this touch, this smell under your tongue he's talking about. They're kissing fairly enthusiastically right now. And note again, people, they are married. He's talking about his bride. That is the place for that kind of enthusiastic kissing. And then he says this, You're a garden. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed, a garden locked. He's saying that she is chaste, that she's a virgin, that no one else has come into this garden yet. And, th and that this is a prize to be cherished for both of them, for her locked garden, for his locked garden. But you're not just a garden locked, you are a spring 
a spring locked, a fountain sealed. It's something not to be tapped into too early. Sex, sex is something that in the security of marriage is meant to sustain us, like this refreshing fountain that just keeps on going on and on. That within the context of marriage, that's what it's like. But outside of marriage, it's something that just spills out, that makes this mess and eventually dries us up. But there, this locked garden, this locked spring, God is calling us to that, to to sexual purity. And so apart from the fact that God calls us to holiness and sexual purity, and that should be reason enough for us to obey it, there are so many benefits in keeping your garden locked, in remaining a virgin, in being chaste, in not sleeping together before you're married. Because you save yourself from so much heartbreak. You save yourself from the, the complications of past loves, people that you can't look in the eye anymore. You save yourselves from the haunting thought of comparison. How do I compare to the ones that have come before? You save yourself from guilt and regret, from infection, from disease, and you save your garden as a place for your spouse and your spouse alone. No foxes coming in. Back in those times, to have a private garden was like, that was a thing. Um, like butler's pantries today. But like, it was kind of like that, right? You have um, your house and you have this private little enclosed walled garden that no one else comes into. And you grow your herbs there and you're watering these things all the time. Maybe you have a grapevine and, and the sun's streaming in somehow. No one else can get in. This is just your little garden. And it's this picture of perfect happiness on a spring day to just lay back in your garden and eat the fruit that's there. That's sweet, hey? That's a nice, nice image. Just being in your garden and no one else there. And that's what God wants for marriage. That. No one else coming in and stealing. No fear, no shame. Just this locked garden. And it's, it's their locked garden. It's not like she has to keep herself pure so that he can enjoy her garden. It's their garden that they are protecting. So lads, keep yourselves pure because there is a garden that you want to share with one woman for the rest of your life. Lock it. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrhs and aloes with all choicest choice spices. He's talking about all kinds of different plants. Some of these plants are Mediterranean, some of them are tropical, some of them are from the slopes of the Himalayas. And he's saying, you, my bride, you are where all the best things in the world come into one person. I love you. I am satisfied in you. You are everything to me. A garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. He's saying this is not just about the honeymoon, that this is, she's a fountain. She's a garden. She's a source of joy and comfort and pleasure and praise for him for the rest of their lives. His love for her and her love for him. And it goes long after the honeymoon. 
This is a fountain for the rest of their lives. Here's the crazy thing, is that the honeymoon is a long way from the best sex you will ever have. It's the start of something. It is the start of something extraordinary, but it's an awkward and fumbling start. And things within this song's framework and God's framework of exclusive marriage and God-cultivated love, things just get better. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. Um, They're getting excited here. I remember last Sunday, the north wind was coming in. I was in my backyard, in my garden, and um, the blossoms on the peach tree had just come out and on the lime tree, and the bees were coming, and... um, this north wind coming in, you could just smell the blossoms. The strawberries are starting to ripen and it's, it's this place full of promise, right? It's an exciting place to be. The south wind is this stirring fresh wind that comes to us. They're getting excited. And then, finally, she speaks and she says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. She's saying, this is it. Let's do this. And because of where they are, because this is the honeymoon, and they've committed themselves to each other, there is permission, and there is blessing, and there is no holding back. She belongs to him. He belongs to her. And then, and then we see the camera kind of shift away and up, and the music gets louder, and the scene blacks out. Um, we don't actually watch what happens next. And it's very tasteful. It's like a tasteful movie where you don't actually see that stuff. Um, Because we don't need to see what's going on. If you're watching a movie that shows what's going on, that's not tasteful, and that's not helpful, and we don't need to watch those. The the camera shifts. And and then in good time, um, the camera pans back again. And you imagine, like, tangled sheets pulled up tastefully and um, smiling faces and he's talking he is rambling very happy happy talking rambling and he's reflecting on the significance of what's just happened and he says this I came to my garden my sister my bride I gathered my myrrh with my spice I ate my honeycomb with my honey I drank my wine with my milk who knows what he's talking about there But here's something really clear, right? He says one word over and over and over again. Did you get what it was? My. My. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice, my honeycomb, my honey, my wine, my milk. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He's rejoicing in the fact that she belongs to him and he certainly belongs to her. Rejoicing in the wife of his youth. This person is yours, no one else's. And there's no fear of losing them to anyone else. No fear of comparison or sharing or jealousy or disease or anything. We, oh man, we want that, right? That is the exclusiveness you want. You don't want to settle for anything less than that. That is a deep desire. It's 
spiritual hunger to be completely satisfied and not have to run and search any further to belong, to be owned, to be filled up and to, and to be approved in it. Because then you get the others come back in again. These others that are seeing the love between these two and they say, not seeing it, but you know what I mean. And they say, eat friends, drink and be drunk with love. This is sweet. It's just like in the first chapter, the others are blessed by the love of this couple that they have for each other. Um, Helen Keller, she was a, a blind and a deaf woman from last century, and she says this. She says, love is like a beautiful flower which I may not touch, but whose fragrance makes the garden a place of delight just the same. The sexual love of a Christian married couple should be a blessing to others. It is a blessing to others. Get this, if you have a man who is fulfilled, who has eyes only for his wife, then he's not looking at any other women in a creepy way, right? That's a blessing. That's a massive blessing. And that he sees this woman and he protects her and he honours her. That is a blessing for her. That is a blessing for all society. This is the way God wants it. And we should rejoice in it. Because... The sexual love of a married couple elevates their view of others because I'm looking at my wife. She, she is the sexual person in my life. No one else. I'm not looking at anyone like a sexual object. You're all people. Imagine that. Imagine that if the whole world got that, that it was just a man looking at his wife and you're the one I look at like that and this is our garden and that's it. I'm going to look at everyone else as a person. How would that change society? Let's rejoice in Christian marriage and, and in sex between a married couple because it's a blessing for all of society. What do we make of all of this? Like this chapter tells us some key things about sex. Number one, sex means unity. Wife, you become mine. You see, he's talking about like your lips, your, your lips drip nectar. Um, there's this, there's this, you taste so good. You're so beautiful. I'm drinking in your beauty. I could almost, I could gobble you up. <laughs> do you get that? It's like this sense of trying to consume each other. And in a way, in... In sex, they do. <laughs> he becomes part of her and she becomes part of him. And, and sex is profoundly uniting. Paul talks about it in, in 1 Corinthians as well, that when you do that, you unite yourself with whoever you have sex with. And, and don't mess with that. Sex is deeply meaningful. It's not some just biological act on par with like shaking hands or a, or a hug or... Going to the toilet. It's a statement. Every single time, it's a statement. And only when those two people are married to each other does that statement ring true that I am yours, you are mine. 
And, and that's not to say that just because a couple are married that the statement of their sex is always going to be good. But it is fundamental that sex is protected by marriage. It's too meaningful to expose it outside of that protected space. And, and then this. If you get nothing else from this chapter, you should get this, that sex is good. <laughs> sex is good. This is one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture that God is pro-sex. God is happy with it. And he's happy with the detail of it. And he's delighted as married people delight in each other. And in the detail of it, with their spouse, it's good and it's meant to be. But it, it can't be God. Sex is a tricky thing. And sometimes we obsess over it. And we make it everything. And we make it an idol. We make it God. And when it, and when it is everything, and our spouse doesn't worship it the way we do, we get angry. And we're dysfunctional. And that's a really dangerous place to be because we will risk all kinds of things to honour this God that we've made it. But then you swing to the other extreme. People can think of sex as bad or dangerous or evil. Or like this cruel joke that everyone else has got and they've missed out on. Maybe because, um, like you have a person who's paralysed by fear of sex because of the way it's been portrayed to them or the way someone might have abused them. Or you have a person who considers um, themselves holier than others because they're not concerned with sex at all. And they look down on those who are married and, and virginity becomes some kind of a god, my locked garden. We need to put the things in perspective. Sex is good, but it's not God. It's not bad. And how do we do that? Is our focus needs to shift from sex to God. And with our, our focus on him, sex, every other thing in the world takes its proper God-honoring place. And it's, it's sweet, and it's pleasurable, and it's multifaceted, and it unites a married couple, and it's good. And sex is a hint of heaven. Um, he is talking about this garden. She's talking about this garden. And um, as they're talking about it, you get... You're reminded of the Garden of Eden where the man and the woman were there naked and unashamed and God is saying, enjoy it, take all the fruit and eat of it, be fruitful and multiply. God is giving them the, this blessing there in the garden. And Christian sex, sex the way God intended, gives its participants a glimpse of that garden just for a fleeting moment. And it should give us a hunger for the garden to come, to paradise, where there is this river of life, not just a fountain, a river, an abundant fruit, and a bridegroom, capital B, who delights in us way more profoundly than any wife or husband ever could. C.S. Lewis 
he, he wrote about his sex life very honestly. He said this, One thing, however, marriage has done for me. I can never again believe that religion is manufactured out of our unconscious, starved desires and is a substitute for sex. This, this idea that we dreamed up God to make up for sex. That we're making sex this kind of God. He says, for those few years that Helen and I feasted on love, every mode of it, solemn, merry, romantic, realistic, sometimes as dramatic as a thunderstorm, and I love this, sometimes as comfortable and unempathetic as putting on your soft slippers, no cranny of heart or body remained unsatisfied. And he says, if God were a substitute for love, we ought to have lost all interest in him. Who'd bother about a substitute when you have the thing itself? But that isn't what happens. We both knew we wanted something besides one another. Quite a different kind of something. A quite different kind of want. Sex is only the scent of a flower we haven't found. The echo of a tune we haven't heard. News from a country we haven't visited. You see, sex is a blessing from God designed to make us crave him, not sex, to crave him more. And he is the one who can heal our poor take on sex. See, for those of us who've been hurt or disappointed or confused or frustrated by sex, either by Feasting on it improperly or being devoured by it in some way or by making it this massive thing or making it nothing, there is healing and it, and it doesn't start with a technique or a colour by numbers, do it this way kind of approach. It begins by looking to Jesus Christ because get this, get this. Jesus Christ, he is the devoted one. That he is the, the safe place. He chases away the devouring lion. That like, like this lover looking at his beloved and saying, you're, you're perfect, I don't see any imperfection in you. Jesus sees us and he saw us sinful and broken and he still loved us. And he, more than that, more than just pretending to see some beauty in us or love is blind kind of thing, he actually makes us beautiful. That he creates beauty in you. And he rejoices in you, that you are his. It's his love. It's his love that deserves the greatest song, the song of songs. When we get that, how much he loves us. What we have, what we might experience in sexual love, it just points us to him. And if it doesn't, we just got to keep looking back to him. So let's thank God for the beauty of sex. Not worship it. Not reject it. Let it do what it's meant to do. And that's to cause us to worship our creator. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you so much. Uh, we worship you in wisdom that you made us to be sexual beings, that you 
have blessed the world with love and with this covenant of marriage and sex, and it is a beautiful thing. And God, it shows us how much you love us. God, help us to put it in its right place. God, be merciful to us because we have stumbled over it so often. And it has frustrated and hurt and confused us. But with our eyes on you, it finds its proper place. And God, I pray for everyone here that it would have its proper place because you have your proper place in our lives. God, bring healing. God, bring forgiveness. And God, give us an expectation for you and the garden that is to come and your love for us. God, I pray a blessing on all the married people in our congregation, in our community, that their marriages would be blessed by you and a blessing to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.